My text for this evening is Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. As Kevin already said, we're going through a, a series on Romans 8. Hear now the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage from corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in studying this passage, it is clear that I do not have words that are suitable to describe the glory of your gospel. God, I ask you would still use me. You would still use my faltering language. And you would communicate your gospel to those who listen. We know you are capable of doing this. You are capable of doing more than we ask or imagine. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. C.S. Lewis is a pretty common name in Christian circles. He's pretty well known as the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia and for being a stellar Christian apologist. A slightly less known fact, though, is that when he was in college, he was an atheist, and in one of the first books he wrote, he said that if anyone in college had asked him, why, why are you an atheist, why don't you believe in God, he said, because of suffering. He would have said, I don't believe in God because people suffer. There's no doubt that suffering is a hard thing to deal with. Entire books have been written about it. Entire books of the Bible have been dedicated to it. And Paul has written quite a bit of it. What I am dealing with in this text is not all Paul has to say about suffering or all God has to say about it. But what I would like to focus on in this text is that Paul believes that our present suffering should not shake our faith. Because it's not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. Paul is convinced that if you are a Christian, you can wait patiently. Even amidst all of the futility of this world, all of the suffering, for the hope that is to come. I think Paul's right. 
I want to give three points to demonstrate this from the text. The first, our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Second, our present suffering is part of God's response to sin. And finally, the hope we have will outlive and overcome our present suffering. First, our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. This is a paraphrase of Romans 8.18. For I consider that the, present suffer that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It's important to note that Paul does not deny the reality of suffering. He does not say, chin up and smile. He does not say, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. He does not say your suffering is an illusion. No, Paul is very convinced. The pain you feel when you're sick, when you lose your job, when you lose a loved one to death, that is not an illusion. What Paul does say is that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to come. Presently, we are in a place suffering. If you are a human in this world, you will suffer. And Paul doesn't even stop there. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The problem isn't just humans. It's not only humans who suffer. But all creation, everything, has the weight of pain bearing upon it. Now, Paul does not think we should just ignore our suffering. He doesn't think we should just pretend it doesn't affect us. In verses 22 and 23, he says both Christians and the rest of creation are groaning. So, dear Christian, if you know someone who is suffering, if you are in the presence of someone who is suffering, do not attempt to push them out of their grief. Don't try to force them into the good part. Instead, take the advice of Paul in Romans 12 and verse 10. Romans 12 and 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This well-known verse should not be forgotten as we interact with others. It doesn't mean that every time someone is weeping, we have to work ourselves to tears. No, but it means we should be slow to speak and quick to listen, quick to lend a sympathetic ear, But as we lament our suffering, our Christianity changes it. It changes the lament that we have. To Paul, the promises that were given by God to Christians are so wonderful that our suffering is not worth comparing. Let me flesh this out. He's not saying you'll be compensated. He's not saying... You're going to suffer, and in the next life, you'll be given according to how much you suffered. Paul's not saying that. He is saying the next life is so good, so wonderful, so beautiful that 
Whatever you felt in this life, when you look at what you have in the next, you won't even think of it. You won't even think about comparing them because what you have is so precious. Now, it's tempting to think, well, Paul probably could say that because he didn't suffer all that much. Because if he had, he wouldn't discount our suffering so quickly. And that is dead wrong. This is what Paul says about his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times at sea I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from river, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, I don't know, the stories of everyone watching, I don't know what you've been through. I'm speaking for myself. I've never been at risk of that kind of betrayal. I've never had my own people beat me with rods. I've never been stoned. I've never been shipwrecked. God has blessed my wife and I. I don't go many days without food. Paul's undergone all of that. And this person is saying, all of that is not even worth comparing to the promises of God, to the hope we have. Paul wrote verse 18 not because he hadn't suffered, but because the promise was real to him. But once again, they have to look broader. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This problem isn't just ours. It's all of creation. But Paul's solution seems a little odd. Why, why would the revealing of the sons of God help creation? Well, this is my second point. Our present suffering is part of God's response to sin. Look at the first part of verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, this might be confusing, but there is only one person who could subject creation to futility, and that is God. Satan could not somehow overpower him. There's no scheme of humanity that could somehow rest his grasp on what he has made. The only one could subject creation to futility is God. So, why would he do that? We weren't created that way, were we? Well, no, we weren't. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. It should be fairly easy to find. It is the first chapter in the first book of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. The story here is pretty well known. It's the seven days of creation. There are many incredible things accounted to us in this, in this passage, many good themes that 
should be expounded upon, but I want to look at one. Verses 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25 all contain the same phrase. And God saw that it was good. And look at verse 31. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, there are some scholars who will point out, well, it, it says good, but not perfect. So God made a good world, but not a perfect one. Well, whether or not that's the case, I think we can all agree. If he made it good, it's not evil. If it is a good world that he has made, it's not a futile one. It's not a broken one. So why would God create everything good and then subject it to futility? Because of sin. After God creates humanity in Genesis 1, he gives them this charge. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's kind of a strange charge to our ears. Yeah, be fruitful and multiply, that makes sense, but maybe even fill the world, but subdue it, have dominion over it. Modern ears, that might sound like a bad thing. If you think about it, if the person who rules over you is perfect, well, then you have nothing to fear because they'll never abuse their power for the sake of injustice. And we see this in Genesis 2 when God commands, gives Adam a command, rather. You may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will die. This is a command of morality. What we see from this is that humans are a mediator between God and man, or at least we're supposed to be. We are to rule over, as God would, all of the rest of creation. But we still have to obey God. To God, we are creation, and to creation, we represent God. But in Genesis chapter 3, if you will turn there with me, another person enters this place that God has made, this garden. And it's the devil. And the devil goes to the woman God has created in the form of a snake. He tells her, no, you should eat the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil good for you. God lied. And the woman believes the snake, and she does, and the husband follows suit. They, in doing this, they profane the created order. It was supposed to be that humans were supposed to obey God and rule over creation, but now look what has happened. A snake, a creature, has convinced their rulers to rebel against God. When God comes and sees their profaning of creation, he curses them. He shows them what they have done quite visibly in creation. They've already broken their relationship with God, so God takes the relationship between humans and subjects it to futility even the most intimate, look at verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. 
and pain shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This curse doesn't stop with humans. It goes to all of creation. Look what God says to Adam. Verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And the curse continues. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So what's the big difference? The curse gives us three things. That work will be hard. There will be thorns and thistles. And death. That might seem minimal at your first glance, you can avoid half of that curse if you just avoid the agricultural business. Just stay away from plants and, well, you'll still die, but everything else is pretty easy. But through the hard effort and through the thorns and the thistles, we see there's another deeper meaning to the curse. Life is no longer unified. It competes with itself in order to survive. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller gives this example of of an author who went out into nature for inspiration. Instead, she was shocked that there was one governing principle in nature, violence of the strong against the weak. This author concluded that either our morality is some evolutionary fluke. It's a problem. It's a, it's a mutation, and she can't accept that. So she assumes the other. We are moral creatures in an amoral world. This is why thorns and thistles are part of the curse. Why would you need thorns? Why would a plant need thorns unless another life form would consider destroying it for its own benefit. This also explains why our effort is hard. In the first two chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve don't have to work for food. Rather, that abundance is just assumed. God commands them, as we've already seen. You may eat of all the trees of the garden except one. Now, there was work in the garden. It says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Well, before this curse of futility, our work was not done in order to survive. Nature was made to sustain us. The reason God put humans in the garden wasn't necessarily just for their survival, but rather to care for the garden. We were cooperate with each other, nature and humans. But now, we compete. So while the good in creation is not necessarily gone, it only comes through hard effort and always comes with bad. But you might think, well, there, there are structures in place which combat this curse of futility. Minimize its, its effect on our lives. And there is some truth to this. There are advancements in science and technology that 
benefit us and make life easier for us. And business and government have provided us with some barriers against all-out chaos. But the curse even extends to these supposed fail-safes in two ways. First, our own twisted natures, our own fallen natures, will always regress if left unchecked into violence of the strong against the weak. And second, we are still enslaved to nature in spite of our fail-safes, especially in death. The Bible points this out extensively in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I don't have time to do justice to that vastly misunderstood book. For now, it will suffice to say that Ecclesiastes is sort of the antithesis to that song written by John Lennon, Imagine. Why not imagine all the people living for today? Well, because today is ending and tomorrow you die. Here's the second verse in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The Hebrew term that is translated vanity there literally means vapor. It's used to represent something fleeting or futile. So it should come as no surprise that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, that word for vanity is the same word we find in Romans 8.20, translated as futility. The author of Ecclesiastes points out, there's nothing you can trust in that will keep you from that curse of futility. Not your wisdom, not your pleasure, not your wealth. Not honor, not your sin, not your government, not your righteousness, not your business. Nothing that comes from this earth, nothing that comes by the means of ordinary generation can save you from the curse of futility because it itself is under the curse of futility. But that still hasn't answered the question I asked at the beginning. How will the gospel, how will these promises that God gives to Christians, how will that fix creation? Makes sense for me. I need to be justified. I need my sins to be paid for. But it's not as though grass has that same problem. Which brings me to my final point. The hope we have will outlive and overcome our present suffering. From what we saw in Genesis 3, the reason God subjected creation to futility was our sin. That's not the whole picture. Turn back to Romans 8, on the other side, and look at verses 20 and 21 together. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God had always planned to save creation through the redemption of humanity. Back in Genesis 3, we see that humans 
sin, humanity's sin, that is the linchpin in this curse of futility. You take out human sin, and there's no reason for it. There's no reason for God to curse us. And so, if Jesus has died for our sins and rose from the dead, if the Holy Spirit unites us to that death and will raise us on the last day, if our sins have been paid for, then there's no need in that next life for a curse of futility. This is why Paul says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, the promises are starting to unfold. We are justified in Jesus' death. We are united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit who will raise us on the last day and usher us into the family of God. The Apostle John writes this in Revelation 21. After the devil is defeated and everyone is judged, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. In ancient Judaism, the sea was a sign of, of chaos and, and death, something you couldn't control. So it's not necessarily saying there won't be any oceans or seas in the new heavens and earth. It means there won't be death or destruction. Even creation will be redeemed in the end. But that plan has not yet unfolded. Look at verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, God's plan for salvation is moving forward, but that does not mean it's complete. Jesus' work for our redemption is finished. He has not come back and made all things perfect. Here's a pretty solid litmus test for whether God's redemption plan is complete. It's two questions. First, have you done anything selfish in the past week? Have you avoided chores you ought to do? Have you put yourself before others? Have you thought more about yourself than God? And if you don't think you've been selfish this week, I encourage you to ask the person you've been sheltering in place with. I'm sure they will have a very accurate take on whether or not you've been selfish. Question two. Have you been affected by futility this week? Are you sheltering in place? Are you sick? Are you lonely? Do you miss being with other people? Are you tired of being stuck in your house? If you answered yes to one or both of these questions, then the plan of redemption has not been completed. Jesus has not returned to judge the living and the dead. You have not been fully sanctified, and the curse of futility is still in effect. This is why verse 18 is so hopeful. Paul is saying that in this life, it's full of hardships and trials, and they're painful, but they will not be worth comparing to the next life. That's the kind of hope we have. And so, if you're trying to live your best life now, if you're trying to secure the easiest, 
and most comfortable life. Maybe you're trying to get all the experiences you can, see all the wonders of the world. You're going to be disappointed. Consider the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. You don't have to turn there, but it's the story of a rich man who has an abundant harvest. When he collects his grain, he says, what will I do? My barns are already full and I have so much more. Had this man's mind been on God, he would have opened his barns and given the excess to his neighbors or anyone in need. Or maybe he would have sold it and given the money to the church or to the poor. Instead, he tears down his small barns and builds bigger ones and keeps it for himself. And then he says, now I can relax and enjoy life. And guess what happens next? Luke 12, verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? This mortal life on earth is temporary. We do not know what the future holds. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in a week, a year, ten years. Now, it's not wrong to enjoy your life. I enjoy what I do. And it's a blessing if you can enjoy what you do for a living, but... If you think about that more, if you're more concerned with getting enjoyment right now than you are with the next life and living for that, how will God receive you? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say, you cared way too much about things that don't matter? So let us strive that next life because that's our hope we don't have anywhere else to turn to everything else is futile Paul sums this up well in verse 24 for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees now I want to close by looking at verse 25 but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience. It's common knowledge that no one likes to wait. We don't like to wait for food. We don't like to wait in line at the grocery store. We don't even like to wait for our computers to load when the Wi-Fi is slow. And Paul here is saying... Christians have a hope of a future that can surpass anything that can touch us in this life. But you have to wait for it. That's sort of like going to starving people and telling them, I promise you that we will give you a three-course dinner, but you have to wait a week. Anyone who's suffering could read that verse and be kind of miffed, understandably. Waiting is hard when it's for something small like Wi-Fi. So when you're waiting for the redemption of all things and all things to be made right again, that can be agonizing. And we can cry out to God, how long until you return? How long until I see your face? How long until you make all things new? 
And it's not wrong to ask this. It is not wrong for us to lament our present suffering. Asking how long? It's actually biblical. It's not sinful at all. Psalm 13 begins with the words, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The second verse in the book of Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. In Revelation 6, the souls of the martyrs, people who have already passed on to the next life, cry out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Asking how long, that's not sinful in the least. It's good to be excited for the next life. And we've already seen, we groan about this life. But this must never be separated from our knowledge of God's goodness. God has already proved to us his character in giving us hope. The death of Jesus was not something we merited. We were sinners when Christ died for us. We already know God gives good gifts to those who do not deserve it. So we can trust God. And in fact, we might even be able to say a little bit more. Perhaps the reason God waits is because of his kindness. Let me give you an example. In two days, it will be my 23rd birthday. I was born April 21st, 1997. What if God had decided to come in 1996? Now, I fully believe there were people suffering, agonizing in 1996. And I'm sure some of them were Christians. And they asked God, how long until we see your face? Why do you prolong the inevitable? Why, why do you keep us in this state of suffering? I'm pretty happy God waited till now. Because otherwise I wouldn't have existed if he had come in 1996. Perhaps the reason God's waiting is so that other people can be saved. Second Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, this doesn't change the fact that our suffering is a curse doesn't mean that we should stop lamenting it, but it does mean that if God doesn't answer our prayer instantaneously, he's probably got a very good reason for not. So trust in God's goodness. Trust and wait patiently. It'll all make sense. Maybe not now, but it will. It's really odd to preach a sermon to a mostly empty sanctuary. I don't know how many people are watching. I don't know who's on the other side of the, of the camera. I assume that many of you are, are faithful members of URC. Maybe some of you aren't. Maybe you heard about us and you're checking us out. Maybe you're trying to learn more about Christianity or maybe, just maybe, you're just looking for hope. Looking for hope in these troubling times. 
And the truth is, there's no easy fix to this pandemic. There's no easy way for us Christians to do anything to make it change. But there is hope. There's hope in something better. A better life beyond anything you can imagine right now. A place where you will be so loved that you will forget every minute of pain you had here. A place where you will be so happy nothing on this earth will compare to it. The best part is it doesn't end. It goes on for eternity. If that's something you think you want, that's the sort of promise you would like, you think, yeah, I want to believe that. I want access to that. Well, then believe. Repent from ways of, of self-worship, self-idolatry, self-gratification. Look to Christ, the incarnate God, who died in our place, suffered for our sins, and rose again on the third day. That promise of new life. Believe in that, and all of that will be yours. Or maybe you know the gospel. Maybe you're one of those faithful members. Maybe you grew up in the church and you've been a Christian your entire life. And you've realized, well, I, I think about this world too much. And you want to start to change, but you have no idea how. Well, here's two practical steps. First, read your Bible. And don't just skim through it, but actually read it. And then think about it. Let the message sink into you. And don't just read a few verses either. Read a few chapters, maybe even whole books at a time. Get to know God's message of redemption to humanity on his terms. Second, pray. Pray. Ask God for that kind of perspective, the perspective of thinking of the next life. And don't don't doubt when you pray. God is not going to stop you from obeying his commands. And if it doesn't happen the first time, well, ask again. We've already talked about God's timing. It is perfect. But by praying over and over, you're showing, I want this, and I won't stop until I get it. Now, this might not happen instantaneously. Miracles are possible, but generally takes a long time to change your perspective from this life to the next. But I promise you it's worth it. God's promises are much better than anything this world can give. Or maybe you are a Christian and you think about the afterlife quite a lot. Maybe there's something in your life that drives you to it, some suffering, some loss that you've had, and you constantly think, I can't wait to get there. You look at this life and that, that hurt, that suffering, it, it digs into you. You say, how long? How long, O Lord, until I see your face? Dear Christian, be patient. and Wait for God's timing. He has never failed to be faithful to us before. He will not fail to bring all things to completion. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, in these times, it is easy to think that you are far away from us, that you don't care, that you have forgotten about us, but we know that this is not true. We know that you have already given us hope of new life in you, one that does not end and one that is free from this curse of futility. God, I ask that you would give us trust in you. You would keep us from impatience. Help us to know that you are good and if you do not give us what we want instantly, in this case, there is probably good reason for it. Help us to put others at this time before ourselves. Help us never forget, even in these hard times, to worship you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.